Hello, everyone, and welcome to Loops. I'm Kevin Forsyth, and on this podcast, we discuss God's word, his church, and everyday life, always asking the question, how does this loop back into our life and God's kingdom? Today, we sit down with Bryce Cosme from Greater Bakersfield's First Pentecostal Church. He shares his personal testimony of how he came to God and first felt the calling of God in his life. He currently is leading Project 39, the start of a church in Southwest Bakersfield. He explains how Project 39 was started, what the ultimate goal is, and the importance of being a laborer in the kingdom of God. Welcome to Loops. You've been really busy though with Project 39 this past year. Yeah, yeah, busy. Yeah, if I'm not busy, I try to find ways to get busy. But yeah, no, staying really busy. Um, just whatever, whatever we can do, you know, just trying to stay busy every day, probably doing something. Yeah. No, it's been awesome. I've been watching it as this past year as you've been running Project 39. And we'll get into that um in just a little bit here, more in depth of what it is, the goals and everything. But I want to walk through your testimony. Um, I remember when you came into church, I think we were in the youth group together, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't know if we've actually sat down and I've heard your full testimony of where, you know, how you, how you were raised when you got in church. Um, so let's start there. What, did you grow up here in Bakersfield? Um, somewhat, yes. Yeah. So uh, growing up from, from a young age, um, my life was just scattered. Um, so my mom and my dad... Uh, we're kind of like skinhead punk rockers type. So when 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 I was young, uh, my mom, I think she had my sister when she was 18. She had me when she was 20. And then they moved a lot. Like I said, moved a lot of places. Um, I never really knew my dad growing up. I, I knew him a little bit later, but uh, I always knew he was around, but I didn't really know him. Like he didn't live with us or anything like that. But it was me and my mom. And it was a lot of moving, you know, from city to city, lived in uh Sacramento for a while, lived in Austin, Texas, uh, Bakersfield. I think I even lived in Lake Tahoe for a while. Moved a lot of times, moved a lot of times. I can't even tell you how many different schools I went to, how many different places I lived. It was a lot, a lot of moving. Um, And so my mom, just give you a little background of of kind of life we lived growing up. My mom was a heroin addict when when around the time, I think just after uh, me me and my sister were born, because I didn't have any health problems or damage or anything like that from heroin, uh, neither did my sister. So we think it was a little bit after that, but but my mom really got onto heroin, really got onto drugs. Uh, my dad, he he was pretty chill. He was kind of just an alcoholic. He stayed at home with his mom, my grandma, uh, never really worked, even when he, he passed away, which I'll get to that. But when he passed away, he hadn't worked enough to qualify, um, I think, for whatever Social Security would go to your kids after you die. He, he didn't have enough hours work to even qualify. So he never really had a job. Uh, my mom literally just went from house to house, friends to friends to friends. When you get off of heroin, uh, what they'll give you is called methadone. And methadone, um, still around today, is a, a medical form of heroin that you'll start at this dosage. And their plan is that they'll lower the dosage and lower the dosage and lower the dosage until you can finally get off, right? Because heroin, mm-hmm. your body kind of grows a dependency upon it. So if you just go straight off heroin, you, you could just die, yeah. right? Because your body, it's like a withdrawal are so extreme. So anyway, so so methadone was something I just, from my beginning of my life, I remember methadone because there's a clinic you have to go every, to every week, they have to fill up these bottles. And just being in that environment, uh, you just run with that kind of people. And that was my mom. She's running with old heroin addicts. You know, people, some people still on drugs. Our life was just really, really crazy, moving from place to place to place um, all the time. Um, and then I remember moving back to Bakersfield. I think at some point after we moved to Austin, Texas, I was in, I want to say, second grade. And then that's that's pretty much where we lived in, in Bakersfield from then. But But again, my life was just moving from place to place to place with my mom, who was trying to get off drugs, but not really. Um, and then eventually what ended up happening is uh, she got with a guy, um, she, they, they got married, and and then he was the one uh, that, that worked. He was the one that took care of the bills. He was the one that was my stepdad. And then my family, which was uh, my sister, myself, uh, my little brother, little sister, they all, we all kind of lived together again. Not my sister, my older sister had already moved away, but we all had lived together again. And at this time in my life, uh, it was just crazy. I was living in Oildale. I think I was in, um, 
sixth grade at the time, fifth or sixth grade, something like that. That's when you moved to Bakersfield? Uh, no, I moved to Bakersfield, like I said, moved back to Bakersfield from Texas. I believe it was like second grade second or something grade. like that. Yeah. And then, and then just through the process of time, I think we lived with my grandma for a little bit, but what ended up eventually happening was with my mom and my new, uh, stepdad was we all lived together again, myself, my mom, my stepdad, my little brother, my little sister. And my stepdad was a hardworking guy. Um, and he, when he got a job, he, he worked, I believe in the oil fields at the time and everything was seemingly better than it was before. I mean, I remember having Christmas with them. That's something we hadn't really done before uh, as a family, had Christmas with them. Um, started going places, going on trips, doing different things. He had a job. And my mom still, like I said, methadone. That was just part of our life. But then what ended up happening was is uh, this guy, my stepdad, had a really, really violent side, like super violent side. And it really came out when he was drinking. He normally was was pretty fine. He was a pretty chill guy, actually really chill. But he started drinking. He, he kind of had that that raging alcoholic side yeah. of him. So that's when um, things kind of turned in a different direction was between him and my mom. Because basically, I could put it like this: his anger was really bad. My mom also like really really rubbed him the wrong way, just like the way they'd go back and forth. So she would get him so fired up, they would end up fighting. Like not fighting, like arguing, like literally like punching, kicking, throwing them out on the street, tearing clothes off. It, it was crazy. People calling the police because, you know, this guy's beating up his wife in the front yard in Oildale and then the police showing up. And then my mom, you know, she didn't want him to go to prison. He was the one that worked, paid for the rent, everything like that. So, you know, oh, that, that didn't happen. You know, we got in a little argument. It wasn't that bad. And then he would just uh, go back to the same thing. And it was just kind of the revolving cycle, the revolving cycle. Well, then eventually... Uh, what ended up happening was it just got so bad and and it was really bad. I don't remember all the details, but it was really, really bad one time when they got in a fight and the sheriffs came. I mean, they had their their rifles right up in his face, took him to jail. Uh, he ended up going to prison, I want to say, for a couple years on violation. He, he had been in and out of uh, prison his whole life. Uh, he, he believe, I believe he had a tattoo, said state race, right? So he's institutionalized. Uh, state raised. He had a really hard life. And I still, I, to this day, I really love him a lot. I really, really pray for him a lot. But he uh, he he had a rough life growing up. And, and you know, he, and, and that kind of carried over into our life. You know, just the violence and, and the environment I was in was just a really scary environment. So he ended up uh, going to jail, prison, whatever it was at the time. And that's when our life really changed. And that's kind of the beginning of the testimony phase uh, of my story is that he was in jail my mom didn't have any way to pay the rent, so we ended up moving from a house, like a one-family, single-family home in Oildale, which was decent for us, to the motels on South Union. So South Union, for anybody um, watching this that's not familiar with Bakersfield, South Union is literally just hotels, motels, gas stations. It's known for prostitution, and it's known for drug deals. It's it's really probably the worst street in the city. If you mention South Union to anybody, they, they know what you're talking about in Bakersfield. So she moved there. Um, at that time, I was just a skateboarder. Like, I love skateboarding. Uh, one of my friends at the time, we skated a lot. His name was Dylan Williams. He's actually pro now. I, I seen him. He's like on Instagram, like a professional skater. We would just go skating. And literally, my life, if you could imagine this, even before my stepdad went to jail, nobody cared if I went to school. Nobody cared how late I was out at night. Nobody cared what I did. So I would be skating with my friends till like 2 or 3 in the morning. We'd go to, it was Centennial Gardens at the time. It's like Rubble Bank or Mechanics Bank now. We'd go skate uh, parks. We would go to the skate parks late at night. We'd be smoking weed late at night, drinking alcohol. We were hanging out with older kids. Uh, it was just a crazy life, man. Thinking about it now, um, 3 in the morning, I was 12 years old at the time, 3, year, mm -hmm. three in the morning just riding my skateboard. I remember police officers would come pick me up and I would just say, hey, um, yeah, I got stranded, man. I'm trying to get back home. They'd give me a ride home. I, I had several, several rides home in the middle of the night from from police officers finding me on the side of the, the street somewhere. And then so this was the summer, I believe, of 2006. I want to say 2006, I believe. And um, that's that was my life, skating, drinking, smoking, hanging out getting high, uh, hanging out in Oildale with my friends. Uh, you know, my mom, I remember I went home one time to my mom. She was living in this uh, hotel in South Union, and there was, like, tweakers everywhere. Like, we, we even though, I, like I said, we had drugs kind of around us, we were never really tweakers. Like, we still, like, were somewhat decent. But when I went there, I remember it was just tweakers. She was everywhere. always battling that drug addiction? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Just and I think, like I said, just the lifestyle. I mean, you're going back to the methadone yeah. clinic. You're going to connect. It's just like you'll never really disconnect from that life uh, as long as you're around those kind of people. So, anyways, so in this hotel, I was just like. The house was packed with people. Just seriously, just packed. It was a little hotel room. People walking in, people walking out. My little baby sister was there. I believe baby brother was there. I was like, man, this is crazy. So I literally determined, like, you know what? I'm not coming back home. So I just ran away from home, basically. It's like the summer of 2006, like I said. And just spending nights at my friend's house, night after night after night. And people would ask me, like, oh, where's your mom? What's going on? And I would just say, well, uh, my mom's going to get a house here soon. So she just asked if I could you know, just stay the night with my friends for a while. And I, I would just tell everybody that and I would end up staying, you know, the night at different friends' house that whole summer. And then what ended up happening was uh, school started. And so when, when school starts, that's when, you know, they found out uh, where I was. So because I, I was going to school, because I know if you don't go to school, the cops can come looking for you. So I was going to school from one of my friends' house. And I think it may have been the first or second day of school, I get a, a call over the loudspeaker Bryce caused me to the office. Bryce caused me to the office. This is standard, not standard, uh, Beardsley Middle School in Old Dell. So, okay. So, I go to the office, and the office was our social worker. So, once, once uh, you know, you, you have a case open, I believe maybe even if you're on welfare or food stamps, you have a caseworker. Caseworker comes, checks out your house, makes sure everybody's safe, stuff like that. So, I knew this lady already, and she had come to the office that day in the principal's office, and she started asking me questions, you know, just how's everything going? Everything was fine. I thought, and then she asked me, where's your mom? And I said, oh, my mom. I said, uh, yeah, she's she's over there, South Union. You know, I'm just coming to school here right now. I'm staying with a couple friends because, you know, she's moving here. But but yeah, when's the last time you talked to her? And I said, oh, I, I think I talked to her maybe yesterday. And that's what they told me. Well, actually, um, your mom has been in jail for the last 30 days and we weren't able to find you, your little brother, your little sister, they're already in, in foster and we're looking for you. We didn't know where you were. We found out you were at school and that's why we showed up here today to take you. So I was like, okay. So they knew I was lying. All right. Well, what's going to happen now? Well, they said, okay, we're going to take you to the Jameson Center. So the Jameson Center, it might be for all of Kern County. The Jameson Center is basically the holding place where all the kids that are are taken from their parents are put there, kind of like an emergency housing. And then from there, they're going to get shipped off to either a group home or a foster home or maybe go back to, to their mom and dad. It just depends how that goes. Well, I end up staying there, I want to say, for like a month, maybe two months. It was long because you're not supposed to be there for that long. And I was there for a really, really long time. And that was when, man, it was like mental breakdown for me. Because my life at this time, like I said, I could just go do whatever I want, smoking weed. There's high. no structure there. No structure yeah. at all. So now it's like basically to, to my mind is like I'm in jail. I remember getting, I think you got like a five minute or 10 minute phone call a night. I was calling my grandparents like, hey, can you come get me? I'm, I'm here. I don't want to be here. I'm with a bunch of kids. I, I do not want to be here. And Jamison Center, you guys all go to this little school. It's kind of like a fake school, honestly. They like just practice handwriting and stuff like that. It's not really educational. It's more just trying to stay busy because yeah. you're only supposed to be there for a few days. And um, going to the school with everybody, wearing the same clothes as everybody. I remember they had lice break out. I remember I got lice while I was there and I was just freaking out. I remember I was crying like literally like every night I was just crying like, oh, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. I was thinking about running away. Going, going real quick, going back to when you found out your mom was in jail. Did you, I don't know if you already mentioned it. Did you know that your mom was already in jail? No, no. So you found out when she came there. When, yeah. Cause like I said, I was, I was pretty much done with my mom. You know, I, I was just like, whatever. My mom was hanging yeah. out with these tweakers and that was you like, had enough with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, man, this is, this is crazy. Like these are just like spun out, like, you know, tweakers. So I, I didn't want to mess with it. I want to go hang out with my friends in oil down and just be a skater. That's all I cared about. So, so yeah. So, so when, so back to Jameson Center, when I was in Jameson Center, I was just like torn up, man. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know where I was going to go. I was just like calling my grandma. They couldn't come get me. Um, and then basically what had happened from that point, um, as far as the foster system goes, is that my mom was given like, you know, the steps. Okay, this is what you need to do. My mom got out of jail. These are the steps you need to do to get your kids back. These are the classes you need to take. These are the things you need to do and you'll get your kids back. And I think I'd get to go visit with them, like supervised visits, maybe once a week, I think, with my mom. But she just would never do it. She'd never go through the classes. She would never take care of. So we ended up really never getting to go back and live with my mom. So I ended up becoming just a foster kid at that time. So from Jameson Center, 
uh, I finally got shipped out to a group home. I, I don't remember the name of the group home now. I'm trying to remember. It may have just been called Campus Park Group Home, to be honest. But I know it was Southwest Bakersfield. And it was on Crowning Shields Drive off of Pin Oak Park Boulevard, close to Tevis Junior High. And that was probably the worst time of my life, even till now. So I was 12 years old, um, living in a group home with all the other kids were 16, 17 year old kids. And I, I was the youngest and I was like super short kid, just a little kid. I was scared. Like I thought, I thought yeah. I was tough. But I really wasn't tough. I was just a skater. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't like going to fight anybody or like I wasn't a gangster or anything like that. I just like playing video games and, and hanging out and stuff like that. So with these kids, these were group homes were generally for kids that couldn't go with a family because they had criminal record because they're runaways. Um, so to give you a little example of this. So a foster home would be like a mom, a dad, or maybe just a dad or a mom, but you'd literally have a household of just people, individuals that would open up their home to kids. So, you know, this room, this bed would be your room and you're kind of like part of the family, so to speak. With group homes, um, it's completely uh, organized like a business because you have an owner or manager, you have shifts, you have a morning shift, you have an afternoon shift, you have an overnight shift. So everybody that comes in and comes out of that home is is not really not really too concerned with you. It's more just their job, right? They're just coming in to clock in, clock out, do their job. So nobody really cares about you in that sense. And that was when it really got bad for me because I was like, man, this is horrible. This is like literally the worst time of my life. Just, just like I said, thinking about running away, thinking where I'll go, you know, how am I going to get out of this, trying to escape? I was really just looking for an escape. Yeah. And, and that's when, um, you know, I just started looking at my options because to get out of the house at the time at the group home wasn't easy because you had six kids in a group home, you had two staff, and to go somewhere, they had to take at least three kids with them to go somewhere. So for me, like, let's say I want to go to the mall. Well, you can't go to the mall unless everybody else wants mm -hmm. to go with you. You can't go hang out at your friend's house. You can't go anywhere on your own. You have to go with those staff and with those kids that are with you. Wow. So it was like living in jail pretty much yeah. for me at that age. And like I said, I was just scared, man. I was scared to death. Didn't know what I was going to do next. Um, just crying, man, crying, 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 just brokenhearted, super brokenhearted and scared and seeing my mom once a week. And then the, another hard thing that I, I dealt with is, is just going to school. Because think about this. Um, when you go to school with a mom and dad, you, you don't really have any problem talking about your home life, talking about your mom, talking about your dad. Well, for me, it was like, I didn't talk about my mom. I didn't talk about my dad. You know, when I get report cards, I wasn't taking that home to mom and dad. Yeah. I was taking that to like Roland or Reggie or, or whoever, Orlando, or, uh, I'm trying to think of some other names of the staff. I was just showing staff, it to the staff yeah. and they would turn to the manager and it was like, oh yeah, we'll file that away and it'll be, you know, part of your file or whatever. It wasn't. There was no personal connection. No personal connection. So it, it just, man, it, it messed me up because even now you do your research on kids and they say that's like one of the most um, kind of key moments in a young person's life is kind of that age, 12, 13 years old, yep. right? They say like, if you learn something at 12 years old, you'll learn it better than probably any other year because that's like your most uh, sponge-like moments yeah. is just to absorb everything. And so for me, you know, not having a mom in my life, not having a dad in my life. Um, my dad, by the way, I, I kind of skipped over this getting into the story, but my dad, when I was 10 years old, had died of an overdose. He had came and seen me. Um, I don't remember what year that would have been, but he came and seen me for July 4th weekend when I was younger and ended up overdosing on his way home. Um, on a Greyhound bus. He would take the Greyhound bus. He lived in San Ramon up there by the by the Bay Area uh, with my my grandma. And uh, he went to sleep somewhere on a, on a park bench and he ended up dying on his own throw up. He uh, would take pills and, and beer together. And I guess in his sleep started choking and didn't know what's going on and ended up like basically asphyxiating, drowning on his own throw up. So like I said, at this time, I didn't have a dad to reach out to at all. My mom was just out there somewhere. We couldn't live with her. She wouldn't do the classes. She wasn't going through the program. She wasn't doing what they wanted her to do. So I'm stuck in the group home. Um, like I said, it's just a confusing time. You know, you're talking to your friends. And, and or the other weird thing would be is that you have other kids in the group home that go to the same school as you. And then you just become known as the group home kids that come to mm -hmm. our school, you know, because you guys all get out of the van together. You do everything Were together. Were you close to anyone in the group home? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know what? Last week there was a guy named Evan, Evan, um, Alvarez, Evan Alvarez, man, I was going down 34th street, I believe last week. And I stopped over and talked to him for a minute and ended oh, up nice. adding him on, on Facebook, trying to connect with them and see, see what happens there. But yeah, no, I mean, there's some of them I still talk to. Um, 
because you do get a close bond with yeah. some of them. And then there's some of them that are, that are just crazy. Like I said, these are kids that aren't supposed to be in families. They're supposed to be in this institutionalized thing. So for me at that time, man, it was just, it was heartbreaking. And I really think even to this day, there's things about me. Maybe people don't understand. I feel like even emotionally or relationships, things like that, that probably, and I'm not going to be a victim, but probably is because those times in my life when I needed a family, when I needed love, like I was just put in a, like a, a business that was, you know, hey, we're going to get $8,000 per kid. Let's get six kids in here. Let's get all the staff. Let's get our counselor. We're going to take them to this, this, and this. And, and it was a program, right? So at that time in my life, it was just broken. So, which kind of leads up to the main part of my testimony, which is trying to get out of the house, man. That's literally all I was yeah. trying to do was get out of the house. Um, so I was sitting at the, the, the kitchen table and they have all these posters. So imagine like your house, it's like all these posters. You know, if you ever work somewhere where they have like employees rights and things like yeah. that, California, yeah. it's like, like required. Restaurants and stuff. Restaurants yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like you're required by law to have all these posters with like employee rights. Well, we're a business, so to speak. So we have all that stuff. Well, one of the posters was foster kids have rights too. And it just went down the list. It said like um, normal stuff, foster kids can receive mail. Foster kids can go to the doctor. Foster kids can, um, you know, whatever it was, just different things they could do by law. And then one of them said, um, foster kids can go to any religious activities of their choosing. Well, when I read that, like, like I was just bored in the house just reading that thing. And I was like, wow, religious activities of my choosing. Okay, maybe that's how I'll get out of the house. So that is when I went to the group home and I said, hey, um, if I want to go to church, does that mean everybody else has to go with me? They said, no. I said, you don't because we can't force anybody else to go. That's your religious freedom. They said, by law, you know, we have to allow you to go. I said, okay, well, I'm going to be looking for a church. Well, one of the ladies, uh, I won't say the denomination, but she went to a denominational church and uh, said, oh, you know, I go to church. You want to go to church with me next Sunday? I was like, oh, yeah, for sure. I'll go with you. Like I said, I was just trying to get out. Yeah. I remember I went to like the most boring church service ever. Like if God wanted me to be in that church, that was like the perfect time to get me in that church. And I went and man, it was so boring and horrible. And I was just like, man, this is not what I want. Like I'd probably rather stay home than go to this church. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go do my own research. I'm going to find the church that I want to go to. And again, I didn't know anything about churches. So I started going through the phone book. At that time, the phone book was your main way to look at businesses and things like yeah. that. So I'm going through the phone book and there's literally like, you know, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, you know, Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, all these churches, Christian, Baptist, whatever. And I see a picture of a church. And I'm like, hey, I recognize that church. That's that brick church. And that was the church I had seen in the middle of the night on my skateboard going across the bridge back and forth to Oildale. I had seen that church. And wow. I was like, you know what? Not only have I seen that church, but that's the church that my great grandma Martha Goff went to. And I said, man, you know what? If I'm gonna go to church, why don't I try that church? Like, I'm just looking to get out yeah. of the house because of this little loophole I found where I could get away for a while. So literally, and you can imagine this, is I woke up one Sunday morning, said, hey, I'm going to church. Here's the church I'm going to. Okay, what time does it start? I don't know. I don't know what time it starts. So I remember I went, uh, when you're a skater, um, you you wear out your, your shoes. Your shoes end up getting holes in them from the grip tape of the skateboard. So my shoes had holes in them. My knees, uh, my pants had holes in them. And then also what I had started doing, kind of a nervous habit, I had started pulling on the hair on the back of my head. So what ended up happening was I had like a pretty big size bald spot. I think I was doing it probably for attention too, because a lot of people were worried about it at the home. But it was just probably, I don't know at that time, but I was pulling on my hair all the time. So I went to church that morning. I had a huge bald spot. I had the, the holes in my shoes, the holes in my knees, all that. And I literally was just like, I'm so glad to get out of that group home. So they dropped me off at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning, nine o'clock. Literally nobody's here. And they're like, hey, nobody's here. I was like, well, let me go inside and double check. So I go inside and double check. The only person here is Dave Welch. Mm -hmm. Dave Welch yeah. is here. He would get here. I believe at that time he was the first person here and then he would stay all day. He'd sleep at the church during the afternoon. And I think he was the last one to leave and he would carry the keys around and lock all the doors. I'm pretty sure. So he was there at nine and he couldn't hear that well. So I remember I came in through the side door, which would be like underneath the awning and I'm looking around and there he is over there on the side. And I'm like, Hey, how's it going? I'm here for church. And he like walks all the way over me cause he can't hear. So he gets like right up in my face. He's like, what was that? And I said, I'm here for church. He said, okay. Yeah. A church starts at 10. I said, okay, where can I go till 10? He said, you could just sit in the sanctuary if you want. Said, okay. So I go back to the van and I'm like, hey, uh, they said church starts at 10, but I can hang out in the sanctuary till it starts. Like, okay. 
Sounds good. Yeah, we'll see you. Like, you know, like I yeah. said, just employ. All right, see you later. Just turn around, pull out with the group home van. Real quick, I wanted to back up a little bit to when you first saw that flyer. Why did the, when you saw a religious activity, you can you can go there. Why was it that that you chose? Was it something that just stuck out or that you were just trying to, like you said, find something to get out of the house? Yeah, yeah. I think it was just a loophole, man. Like I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't looking for church. Mm. Like I wasn't like, oh man, I need to go find a church. I literally was like, Finding a way, like if you could imagine being miserable, getting off of school, not allowed to go anywhere except sit in this group home with these staff and these other kids. Not like I said, everybody went to bed. I believe it was like 730. It was like really, really strict uh, the way it was all organized. So for me, literally, it was like, how do I find some freedom from this place? Like any way possible, because you can't go. Like I said, I can't go to the park by myself. I can't go to the store by myself. You literally can't leave and nobody really wants to take you anywhere you want to go. So basically when I saw a church and after talking to them, it, like I said, it was kind of like the loophole of how I could get out of the house. You were just trying to get out. Just trying to get out of the house because like I said, I was miserable, man. Yeah. I was miserable. I remember I was crying. I was going to school. I'm not like this kid I used to be. Like imagine going from spending the night every single night at all your friend's house, going around your skateboards whenever you want to go. Now I don't have a skateboard. Now like I'm living with a bunch of kids. Now when I'm going to school, like I said, I'm getting dropped off with the other kids. Like my life at that time was just horrible. It's just a horrible, yeah. horrible life. So literally, I'm just like, how do I get like an escape from this, right? How do I get out of here? That was literally all I had on my mind was how do I get out of here? So um, that kind of leads me to, like I said, was was with church that day. So I found out, okay, I can go to church. Nobody else has to go with me. Like This is my chance to get away and just go do my own thing. Get out of this group home for a little bit. That's all I was trying to do. I'm being honest, that's all yeah. I was trying to do. And... I got off the van. I got here early that morning. It was nine o'clock in the morning. The only person here was Dave Welts. Dave Welts like I said he was he was all the way over on the side. He couldn't hear that well. He like marched all the way up to me, gets in my face, like, what was that? I said, Oh, I'm here for church. What time does it start? It starts at 10. Okay, well, where can I go till 10? Oh, you can sit in the sanctuary if you want. Okay. So I go back to the van. Hey, church doesn't start till 10. I can sit here till the sanctuary in the sanctuary till it starts. Okay. See you later. So they turn around, pull off, leave. So then I just go in the sanctuary. And I remember just sitting here and just feeling like, wow, what what, what kind of church is this? Because I'm, like I said, I've got holes in my jeans. I've got holes in my shoes, bald spot. My hair's overgrown. You don't get a lot of haircuts in the group home. That's a big deal, even to get a haircut or new clothes. I'm sitting there and I'm just looking. I see the pillars. I'm just all by myself. It's just quiet and it's really peaceful, to be honest, at the time. And it's like, wow, you know, this is interesting, just really peaceful. And I remember at that time, the pre-service prayer um, people would come down and they had these altar benches in the front. And I remember seeing people come with their kids and walking up to the front with their kids and, and praying. And I was like, wow, like that really affected me to see people come down and pray before church because I had never seen that before. You know, like I said, I had just been to some other church. It was like super boring. Um, not interesting at all. I didn't feel anything just completely dead. And I'm like, wow, like this place seems like these people are pretty serious. Like church doesn't start till 10 and they're already here. Um, praying and, and with their kids. And I was just looking around as the church began to fill up. And I was sitting right in the middle aisle towards the back, towards probably one row in front of the sound booth, which probably would have been the first seat I could have sat in. And I'm just sitting there waiting for church to start. I don't know what to expect. I, I literally, I don't know what the Bible says. I don't know what it means to be in church. I, I don't really know who God is, who Jesus is. I don't know if I believe in God. I, I mean, I just literally don't believe. Yeah. I, I don't know what to believe. I don't know anything. I'm just, I'm just literally trying to get out of my house to go find a place to have some peace and quiet and get away from everybody. That's all I'm trying to do. And I sat there and church is about to start and we may have already stood up for, for songs. It may have already been sitting down, but I know church is about to start and somebody comes and taps me on the shoulder. I was still sitting there and I said, Hey, how's it going? They said, Oh, um, Hey, I'm brother Nate Reese. He said, uh, I'm the junior high Sunday school teacher. Are, are, what grade are you in? And I said, Oh, I'm in seventh grade. I just started seventh grade. Said, well, we have a Sunday school class if you want to go. I said, okay, yeah, that sounds good. That's fine. So literally, I go over there, walk around, sit down next to him. I don't know anybody. I'm just with him. I think they did two or three songs at the time, and then the Sunday school would be dismissed, and I got dismissed to the junior high Sunday school class, which at that time it was um, Brother Nate Reese and Brother Raymond Andreas. They were the Sunday school teachers, and they did an awesome job. If I can just say that for a minute, they did an awesome job in Sunday school for the years that they were together. I remember was, those years. Yeah, 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 it was awesome. They took it really serious, and they they did a really, really great job. It was yeah. like awesome moves yeah. of God. But anyways, I, I went in to that uh, classroom, 
And I, I didn't know what to expect. Everybody else said, these are like nice looking church kids. You know, I'm just a tore up looking kid. I, I don't even know probably what they thought of me. And I remember sitting there in this little Sunday school room and um, Brother Raymond just started preaching. It, it wasn't like, you know, hey, today we're going to do a bunch of fun and games and we're going to do all this stuff. And, you know, we're going to play pool afterwards and watch the game or whatever. It was like, hey, all right, let's open up our Bibles. Okay, let's go to this. And he was reading from uh, the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower is that a man went out forth to cast the seed and he throws out the seed and the first seed lands on the good ground. The next one lands on the mm-hmm. stony ground. Then it lands on the ground with the thorns and thistles. Um, and he just preached a message about what kind of ground is your heart going to be? And I didn't know what he was talking about. I really didn't know anything. But I remember after that was over, uh, his altar call was today. Are you going to be the ground that God wants you to be? God's speaking to somebody here today. And and who is going to be the ground that, that the seed can land on a good ground today? And I just started crying, man. I started crying because I, I didn't even know what I was feeling, but I started feeling something. And I remember they turned the lights off for prayer afterward. And I just started crying and I was crying and crying and crying. And it was like, I think almost like everything that had balled up recently over all the stress and just being moved into this group home, it was really built yeah. up and tough. Yeah. And I couldn't express that, you know, like at school, you kind of have to be a different person because you're, you're a group home kid. You know, you have to, you really learn how to live a double life, yeah. so to speak. So I remember just crying and, and man, it was like something broke. And, and I remember uh, they started praying for me. All, all the kids in the class got around me, started praying for me. I think somebody was probably lifting up my hands. I was just sitting in the chair leaning back. And, and I remember looking up and they were saying, you know, Jesus is here. Jesus is in this room. You know, Jesus loves you. Call out to God. And I was just saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. I didn't even know who he is. I don't know what he was, who, if he was even real. But I remember at that time, I just felt peace and I felt the power of God in my life. Literally, like, I knew in that moment that God was real. And and I've had a few more moments like that over the years where it's just like the ultimate experience of just feeling like you're in the very presence of God, yeah. you know, like kind of like you're going to peek your eye open and he's going to be standing right there. You yeah. know, that's how it felt. Like he was literally in that place. And I was like, wow, this isn't just the church. This isn't just getting out of the house like I thought it was. But this this feels like this is... This is really where God is. God is is here. It's amazing what God moves and works in. You you think you're just trying to get out of the house to do something to get out where you are, but God was working in that. And, and you That's never amazing. you never know. You know uh, um, who's showing up to your service, who's showing up to your class. One, I went to church one time. Uh, I think in second grade, one time I think to this church. Uh, I don't remember who the teacher was, but I, I just like you never know like who's who's in your service today, who's in your class today that at some point is gonna remember the church, remember yeah. you. And and that was me. I remembered I just remembered that, hey, that's the church my great grandma went to. That was the church I, I rode by on my skateboard in the middle of the night, three in the morning, twelve year old kid, high as a kite on, on weed. And uh so from that point, I remember I walked, I, I got up and, and everybody was done praying. It was like so long after church was over. Church was probably over like 30, 40 minutes ago. And I was still there praying and crying. And Brother Raymond and Brother Nate were praying with me and crying with me. And it was it was awesome. Literally never forget it. Never forget it. And I remember walking back out to the van and I was just like out of it. I mean, my face, everything. I was just like, whoa, man, I felt light. Yeah. I felt like weightless. You know, I felt like a, a pressure. I felt like a heavy weight had been taken off of me. And I was like, man, I, I don't Finally know. feel peace. Yeah. I felt like everything that was weighing me down was kind of lifted, man. It, yeah. it really, really felt like that. And I remember I, I got back in the van and got home, called my grandma. I went to church today. Oh man, I felt the Holy Ghost today. Oh God. You know, and then there was some other guy uh, talking to me from the, the group home. And he said, well, you know, he was like some hippie dude. He's like, well, you know, all religions lead to the same path. You know, I'm glad you had that experience today or something like that. <laughs> so just imagine just, you know, yeah. the life of going from, it's like you're in a bubble. It's like, it's like an alternate reality living in this yeah. group home, you know, and, and I, I, I'll be honest, even to this day, I, I feel like that's really affected me really bad because I think those development years that you need family, you need a dad, you need a mom. I just, just never had that. Did you, sorry, did you ever have that connection with anyone that was like managing the group home? No, not really. I feel like they don't even, some people would do stuff like that. They'd be like, oh, that's my mom. Like sometimes the little staff would adopt the kids, so to speak. And that, oh, my mom's working tonight or my mom's working tomorrow. We'll be, you know, hanging out with my mom. Some people do stuff like that. I did it. 
I didn't. I just wanted to get out. So they were more of like just clock in, clock out employees, apply just for the job. Just watch what they're doing, like supervising yeah. what's happening. Apply for the job, get the job, make sure they're following, make sure the house is clean, make sure everybody's doing their chores, make sure that everybody's taking their meds, make sure everybody's getting to school, everything like that. And then uh, after a little while of that, um, I moved a lot. I think I moved through the foster system from the age of 12 to 18. I believe I moved 15 times, and I think I went to 10 different schools. Um, there's a lot of moving, yeah. and, and group homes would shut down. You'd have to move. But what ended up happening at some point uh, was actually was able to get out of the group home, and they ended up putting me in foster homes, which was a little bit better. But I just I just had to determine in my mind, you know, I wanted to live for God. I really wanted to live for God. I was, I was just a tore-up little kid, and— and Brother Nate Reese told the group home, hey, you guys don't worry about picking him up no more. I'll go pick him up. And, and Brother Nate, which at the time I didn't really know where he lives, but I know where he lives now. He he drove probably 15 minutes out of his way every service to go pick me up. And because he lived over off of, I want to say like Pacheco and Monitor, and he would cross over White Lane, go all the way to Southwest, come pick me up and then turn around and take me to church. And he did that faithful, man, for I want to say two or three years. It was it was just incredible. Brother Nate was an awesome, awesome voice in my life, and Brother Raymond Andreas mm -hmm. as well. And and I remember just like I said, just moving from place to place to place, and wanting to live for God. And and that was the one place where I felt like I could get away from. And you know, I had a lot of struggles with that because there were some people that didn't understand that I, I moved in with some people that were Jehovah's Witness. They were cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't mind, but I mean, it's just like I said, it's like an alternate reality. You're living with these people, but they're not really your family. Yeah. You know, this is this is your house, but it's not really your home. This is just where you live. And then uh, I remember I with one lady. Um, I live with one lady that didn't want me going to church at all. She's like, oh, no, you have a family now. Oh, you don't need to go to that church anymore. And literally, like, stopped me from being able to go to church for a while. It's just every household was a different yeah. thing and ended up getting out of there. And, and like I said, I moved around a lot. Um, but I just determined, like, I, I just want to live for God. Like, this is the one. Group. Yeah, and that was the one place, you know, that's where my friends were. That's where, you know, I love the, the conferences, Acts 238 yeah. conference. I remember the first year was Brother Ballastero and Brother Wilmoth, um, 238 conference. Um, I remember snow trips and youth camps, yeah. and I'd be able to go to Peak. I remember I went to Peak. This kid from the foster group homes went to Peak because somebody paid my way to go. Um, I think my grandma might have helped me got my first suit, and I just, man, I just plugged in. I, well, first year we actually had UPC uh, Western District Youth Convention, the very first year that I got into church, we went, it was like 10,000 people there or whatever. It was where, just awesome, man. Where was that at? Uh, downtown, the convention I center. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it was, I think, one of the last years yeah. uh, that they had it in Bakersfield. I went, and I remember like, oh, man, it was like awesome. Yeah. It was just like the exciting times, you know, you grow fond of those moments, first coming to church, yeah. then for God, like those moments you'll never forget. Um, but anyways, it was kind of at that time that I really started um, – feeling a call to do something for God, you know, um, just feeling like call to ministry. I wanted to be a preacher, you know, at that time, even at 14, 15 years old, only being in church a little while. I remember I went up to Brother Frost uh, after the, they had All Saints Prayer. I think it was the first um, Thursday. Of, no, at that time we had church on Thursday, so it must have been Tuesdays. The first Tuesday of the month, I think, was All Saints Prayer, and they had the minister's class. And I would go to the minister's class. I would literally, hey, Brother Nate, is it okay if I go to the minister's class with you and go over there? <laughs> And the minister's class was over, and I walked up to Brother Frost, and I said, uh, hey, Brother Frost, uh, what do I got to do to sit up on the platform? <laughs> and he was like, oh, <laughs> I don't know what he told me, but he was like, oh, son, you just be faithful to God or whatever, yes. you know, you would tell a young kid. Yep. And I remember, like, it's so funny now, <laughs> like, after a little while of, like, watching in church, and I was looking at all the guys on the platform, and I was like, okay, I know how they got there. You know, they're faithful or whatever, but how about the bishop? Like, how, or he was pastor at the time. How do you get that? So I went back, and I said, you know— uh, I know I already asked you to how to get on the platform. I said, but how does somebody get in your chair? <laughs> and I was just this, this goofy kid from the group home, yeah. man. I, I was goofy. Um, and uh, I just determined I, I wanted to start being used in the ministry. And that was when I was 15 years old. Uh, Brother Raymond at the time was uh, going into the nursing home once a month. It was a nursing home, I think, on the third Saturday of every month. And it was an opportunity. And he was getting busy. He was working out of town. Uh, he was in the air conditioning at the time. And so he's like, hey, if you if you really want to do this, you and Sister Abby can come down here. You guys can do this if you really want to do this. Okay, I'll do it. So I started, man, getting my little Bible ready, getting my little notes. I remember the first time I ever preached, I had all these notes, and I had probably like three or four pages of notes. I probably Google searched it and copied and pasted it. I don't know, but I had all these notes. Like I was going to preach this big message, and I had this clock, and I was like, okay, I'm going to preach this message. And I think it was like 
five minutes through and I was already done with all my notes and the message was <laughs> over. And I, and I would just yeah. preach, man. I, I learned how to preach, preaching to these old people at this nursing home and goofy stuff would happen. And they'd be like uh, prayer requests because we'd run it like a service. Yeah. So, hey, does anybody here have a prayer request this afternoon? We want to pray for you. And I remember this one lady raised her hand. Oh, pray for my husband. You know, he, he had an accident. He's got a bullet lodged in his back and it's only like an inch from his spine and he needs prayer. Okay, we're going to pray for you, sister. We're going to pray for you. And uh, after service, I walked back over to her, just trying to be their little pastor. You know, walk around, hey, sister, I just want to let you know I'm going to be praying for your husband. And she was like, what? My husband died 15 years ago. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but that, that was my beginnings, you know, to, to learn how to preach and be involved. Yeah. Um, from there, started getting involved with uh, Sunday school. So Sunday school, I started doing fifth and sixth grade with Sister uh, Denise Torres. And I think Sister Adrienne Lopez also was another teacher in that class, and we were... We were the Sunday school teachers, and, and I did that for a while. I did uh, seventh and eighth grade for a while. I did prison ministry for a while. I, I went out, traveled, preached for a while. I've done a lot of stuff yeah. since then. But but ultimately, my goal has always been to be used of God, right? Like, I, I was never like, oh, you know, I want to be somebody. I want to be this. I want to be that. I want to be recognized. But like, God, I just want to be used. I want to, especially when souls, yeah. like for me, the ministries I've always been the most interested in is ministries where there's souls involved, like going out and reaching new yeah. people. That's always been what I wanted to do. Yeah. Do you feel that's from how you grew up? That's kind of where it led you. And that's what was why you wanted to be called in that ministry specifically. Well, yeah. So even my wife will tell me and I've tried, I, I hope I've gotten better at it, but to like connect with regular, like hardworking, decent people is hard for me. Okay. Like if I'm in a room full of like, uh, drug addicts and and people trying to rehab and stuff i feel like i'm right at home yeah. because i can start talking to them i know the names of the drugs i know the names of the gangs i know the names of the neighborhoods i mean we could start talking about old movies and old gangster rap songs and all this stuff and it's like oh yeah you know we're like when i was doing i was doing bible studies at the men's home for a while or even going to the prison like it was just yeah i felt like i had a connection with them that was different because like I was probably the the result of their lifestyle, but it was like we all connected because yeah. I understood them. Like, you know, maybe for somebody growing up in church, it'd be hard to understand somebody like that. But for me, it's the opposite. For me, it's it's a little bit harder to try to understand the mindset of somebody raised in church, like just living oh, that yeah. good, solid life. Yeah. I mean, for myself, I grew up in church, so right. I, I won't necessarily connect with the group that you may connect with. And I think Brother Phillips had talked about this in one of his messages of using your testimony to reach people that only you may be able to reach. Absolutely. So you may not be able to to reach necessarily someone, uh, like you said, the hardworking, kind of have their life together, but that one group you have that connection with. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Because you can go out on outreach, and uh, I'll just give you a, a quick testimony. We've been going on outreach with Brother Joel Reyes, right? And Brother Joel Reyes is from Lamont. We have literally ran into three families from Lamont on our outreach, and all of them, they're talking about the high school, they're talking about this case where this guy got killed in, you know, 1990 or whatever it was. And like, there's just a connection when you find middle ground with people. So mm -hmm. for me, my middle ground is probably the best with, with people like that. But I, I, I hope I've, I've tried to grow yeah. more to connect with the good, hardworking people, because I realized that you've got to reach everybody. You know, the gospel yeah. is not just for those people. It's also for the lawyer, the doctor, yeah. you know, the businessman it's to whosoever. So I I've tried to grow in that in the ministry not just to reach for those people, but to reach for anybody. Going now to Project 39, you've been really spearheading this pretty hard for the past year or so now. Um, for those that are listening that don't know what Project 39 is, can you give kind of a, a quick update and background of what that is in the, in the ministry and the goals of it? Yeah, absolutely. So with Project 39, the way it was birthed, I had started a uh, social media marketing company. I had done that, I believe, for a year and a half full time. And while I was doing that, um, I was traveling, I was preaching. This is, I want to say two years ago, three years ago, whatever it would have been. I was traveling, I was preaching, uh, going different places, preaching church in California and also in the South. And uh, at that time of preaching, uh, I had preached at a particular church and they, they wanted me to be their pastor. They were looking for a pastor. They didn't have a pastor. The pastor had recently resigned and they were working with another pastor that was my friend. And they're working with him and they were like, hey, like, that's the guy we wanted to be our pastor. So that is when I got back. I had already told, they had already called Brother Bradford. I already talked to Brother Bradford, got back, we had a meeting and we just started talking about, 
you know, what do I want to do going forward? What is my goals? What's my visions? And I just said, well, I really want to be a pastor of a church. Like, that's really what I want to do. You know, he was saying, well, you go be an evangelist. So I was thinking, I don't I don't really want to be that evangelist that travels from church to church. I just want to find a place where I could win souls and, and new souls. So we're talking about this, this church in this particular state in the South. And he said, you know, why don't we do something here? And then that's kind of where Project 39 birthed from. He said, what if, what if you pastored a church here in Bakersfield? He said, you know, we're a big city, you know, 400,000 people. And he said, why don't we start doing some research? Why don't we start getting a plan together? He said, why don't we figure out a way that we can start churches in Bakersfield, start planning some churches in Bakersfield? Why don't we start? So me and Brother Bradford probably met on Sunday morning for, I want to say two months, maybe three months. Um, before we started Project 39 and just going through ideas. I was doing a lot of research. You know, I had a couple friends that had, had done some things um, in different states. So I was just pulling together all the research I could, all the ideas I could. Okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And that is how Project 39 started. So Project 39, the name of Project 39 is for, stands for Acts chapter 2, verse 39, which is, we know Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts chapter 2, verse 39 is, for this promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So it was an idea to reach with the help of the home church, yeah, right? Because you can capitalize on the resources and the talents and the abilities of what's already established because uh, going out into an area without any help at all, it can be done. And man, I, I salute everybody that's ever done something like that, but it is hard. It's very hard yeah. because, um, you know, you're just, you don't have a lot to, to start with. You don't have a lot of momentum. You don't have a lot of people to call upon. So the idea was how do we use the momentum and the help of the home church to start new churches? And that is how we started Project 39. So what we did, we did a big sign up. Uh, a lot of people signed up to help. And we just started doing different events, started doing different outreaches, started connecting the community and, and started getting the ball rolling in the efforts to start new churches in, in Bakersfield. And the idea is that once we get this church started, then we, you know, then we reset, figure, OK, where do we want to go next? And we'll go to a different area of Bakersfield uh, because statistically they say a uh, certain organization says that you should have one church for every 30,000 people. Okay, Bakersfield is a city, almost 400,000 people. So that's somewhere mm -hmm. 12, 13 churches. So the idea would be, the vision would be, you know, the perfect ideal vision is to be, to start churches all over the place, right? Start churches all over the place and just have a greater reach in the city and, and to see, see revival break out through what's already been established here at the home church. Yeah, it's amazing to see the work that you, along with everyone that's involved with Project 39, that you've put in in the past year. I know it's not easy. I mean, you have three children um, and I know it's hard. I have one and I know how busy they keep. she keeps me um, having three of them. I can only imagine how hard it is. Um, and I know your wife is working just as hard as you um, to do this. And it's like you said earlier, it's it says in Luke chapter 10, verse two, that the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Really doing God's work is not easy. Right. And what? What drives you? I mean, we know what it is, but for those that are wanting to do God's work, that feel that calling, but maybe haven't taken that step or trying to realize when to take that step, what would you say to them? I would say that you need to develop a love for winning souls because I'll just give you an example. When I was growing up, there's like different young preachers and they would have these ideas like, well, you know, go, go to these conferences and you go to these conferences and pray for all the young people and you'll get people's attention. And then you're going to, you're going to get this preaching spot and you'll get to preach this and you'll get to do that. And, and some people's mind, um, they're kind of in a bubble, like, you know, all the ministries within the, the four walls of the church. Yeah. And, and that's fine. Like I said, there's, there's needs for that too, as well. So I, I'm not going to discredit any of those things. That's fine. But what I'm saying is I feel like the real drive of the gospel is to go to those people that have never heard the gospel. Yeah. And you'd be surprised. I mean, let's just say First Pentecostal Church of Bakersfield. We know that name. Our fellowship knows that name. You know, it's it's I.H. Terry, uh, Bishop Leon Frost, Pastor Bradford. These are names that people know. And uh, we could talk about big names, Brother Cody Marks, you know, Brother Matt Tuttle, just big, big Pentecostal names. But if you went to these cities, I mean, I could probably go to the neighborhoods and knock doors for three weeks and nobody would know any of those names. You know, so I'm just saying we, we live within a bubble 
And it's fine. I, I don't have a lot to say bad about that. I know, you know, we have churches and we have established and we have legacy and we have heritage, but I feel like the drive for me is to go win new souls and to go find new people that have never heard the gospel. Find people that literally you can say, kind of like me in my life, is that there was a point where I didn't just have something handed to me, but literally God reached out to me and God pulled me out from where I was. And that, that's just a different, completely different yeah. um, testimony. So, so that's my drive. So, so for anybody, I would just say you need to do that. So Billy Cole, Billy Cole was a missionary to Thailand and Philippines. Um, he wrote some books. He has some messages online. But he had a quote that I love, probably my favorite quote. He said that if a young man learns how to preach before he learns how to be a soul winner, he'll always look for a pulpit instead of a soul. Mm. And that's been for yep. me. So even when I, when I preach, um, Brother Bradford has asked me to preach for the Be There nights. When I preach in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, Who's in this service that needs to get right with God before they walk out of this place? Yeah. Not, okay, how are we going to shout? How are we going to praise? How, you know, that's fine. But how is somebody here that's a visitor going to make the decision, not just to join the church, not just to fill out a contact card, but literally to repent of their sins, make the decision, I want to live for God for the rest of my life. And that's been my drive. That's been my drive with everything I do is, is that hopefully to win souls and to see new people saved. Yeah. Just reaching that one. Yeah. Even yeah. if you can reach that one. Yep. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that'll, that'll change everything you do. If, yeah. if you have that mindset of winning souls, um, everything will change. When you get up to preach, you're not saying, okay, I want to preach my favorite message. I want to preach the message, get everybody on their feet. How can I preach the thing that's going to be the most helpful yeah. to the people in this audience here tonight? And you're more mindful of those things. Yeah. And also, I think um, you learn how to appreciate some people that work mm -hmm. behind the scenes in my life is I realize that everything we do, it's not just being in the pulpit. It's not just being seen on the platform, but it's the behind the scenes effort of things that nobody will ever see names. We may never hear those people are the reasons why we have churches today. Those yeah. people are the reason why yeah. we have the resources, people that maybe never preach, but they've been faithful in their giving, yeah. faithful in their offering, faithful in their ministry, faithful bus drivers. I'm here today because of people like that. Yeah. People like brother Randy Newton driving the bus to youth trips. I was able to go to youth yeah. trips because somebody wanted to drive the bus, you know, uh, people that would send me to camp. Some of them, I don't even know who would send me to camp, but people would literally pay for me to go to camp. People like that today, whatever you think of Project 39, whatever you think of me, my ministry, you see me up there preaching, it's because of some people behind the scenes that were supporting the work of God. Yeah, you don't understand the impact that you make with small little gestures like that. Um, well, thank you, Bryce, so much for sharing your testimony and going over Project 39, the, what you're, you're doing. I'm super excited for what God is going to do in Southwest Bakersfield and in Bakersfield in general in the city. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you guys.